This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for coming back to the Football Odyssey. This is your host, Aaron Harris. Today I'm speaking with Greg James. Greg is a football historian that runs the CFL America radio podcast and is the co-host of both from the 55-Yard Line podcast and Gridiron Japan. Greg and I kick back and have a wide-ranging conversation that covers his Canadian football fandom, Howard Cosell, American football in Japan, and much, much more. It was a pleasure to talk to a fellow football-obsessed fan like myself, and I hope you all enjoy this conversation just as much as I did. As always, feel free to subscribe, share, and reach out, and let me know what you think. I've also attached the links to Greg's podcast and social handles in the description, so please go on and listen to his shows as well. As always, thank you for listening, and now, enjoy the show. I was looking on uh, Twitter today, and I saw your uh, new WFL, uh, I don't know if it's your icon on the site or if it was just a poster that you had up there yeah i started um i started an additional cfl america which is all my you know all the the podcast stuff from the 55 yard line cfl america radio football nostalgia i don't know i I had a little time downtime over the weekend and like yeah let me do something world football league because there's nobody out there doing any world football league nostalgia that i can see on twitter so and i um in my moments where I've got some downtime, Pinterest and the phone, it's, uh, I call the phone my fidget spinner. So for me, football, you know, football history is kind of my way of tuning out the the real world. And, uh, you know, I was went in DC over the weekend and did a lot of that. And as I was telling you right before we went on the air, you know, it was in the eye of the hurricane over there in DC. So for me, football is kind of a, a nice break from reality. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, how social media for a lot of football history fans, and I guess on a broader spectrum, sports history fans, has become this sort of museum. Yeah, yeah, definitely has. And uh, it's a place where we can all come together. doesn't really matter which side of the aisle you're on. With football, we're all kind of on the same side, sports in general, though. Yeah. I mean, you're doing three different podcasts, right? You're doing from the 55-yard line, CFL America, and then you have the uh, Japanese football podcast, right? Yeah, doing the Gridiron Japan podcast. The CFL America radio one is pretty much just public domain documentaries I find on the internet, kind of push them out there. So, And then Scott and I, we've got from the 55-yard line where we uh, we try to talk to authors, you know, people who write about are actually part of history. We had... Uh, Matt Dunnigan on not too over the summer with the CFL and uh, we've had another former CFL player and hopefully, uh, hopefully by the time this airs, uh, we will have talked to Jeff Perlman who wrote the, uh, the great book on the USFL. How did you and Scott come to collaborate on the podcast? Well, I, Scott's book came out and I'd seen him on Twitter and we were kind of talking to the same people and in between, you know, responding to each other's tweets and everything. him and I, I messaged him. I'm like, hey, we should do a podcast together. And we've been buds ever since. And when the CFL America radio, was that something that you had been working on for a long time prior to starting from the 55-yard line? Or were the two kind of close together? It was right together. 
Yeah. You know, they both kind of, and for me, uh, doing the podcast and doing the CFL America radio all kind of happened about the time I retired from the military because I had a lot of extra time. And mm-hmm. the one thing about the military is, is, you know, you serve with a close group of guys. And once my service ended after 30 years, well, everybody kind of goes their separate way and separate ways. And, you know, with our little, our football community, as I like to call it on social media, it really is. There's really a tightness and a cohesiveness I found in the last year that it's even better than when I had the military in some respects. Yeah. I think the extent that I see a lot of disagreement either comes with uh, mostly among coaches in terms of who likes to run out of a 22 personnel set, as opposed to who likes running out of the power T and uh, right. you know, who's having trouble with the double wing and how you should respond to RPOs. It seems like the coaches that sometimes can kind of go at each other, albeit civically, but yeah, I, I do right. kind of enjoy those little discussions because it's it's good that with you know what you call like football Twitter, where you can look at history one day. Uh, you know the old film, old football film Twitter page where they show a lot of like trick plays and old football footage. Oh I mean, yeah, I think it gives you great variety. Yeah, and then uh, NFL Classic. I mean, there's just so many, you know, guys out there like you and I just kicking that stuff out. Um, it just it's you know for me it's it's instead of facebook i do twitter football pretty much football twitter now so talk to me about your relationship with football because obviously you know having followed you on twitter and listening to interviews you've done and then uh you know just in kind of our personal conversations football seems to have this larger than life appeal to you that it does to me so can you i guess speak to what the game means to you and sort of your relationship with it yeah yeah okay so for me you know, I grew, I was born in 67. So that puts me being, as I, as I tell many people, you know, I was born when Lombardi coached the Packers and Hallis coached the Bears. So you fast forward in 1977, I'm an impressionable 10 year old who had to wear glasses at, in the second grade. So I think about, it was about the third or fourth grade is when I got glasses, they were brown horn rim glasses that looked just like the ones Bob Greasy wore. And I and from and from there on, I was hooked. I don't know if it was a magazine article I saw him in, it was on TV. I don't remember, but ever since then, I have been a foot a hardcore football fan. Of course, over the years, it's waned, and you know, depending upon career and life in general. But that's where in '77, and specifically, I can even tell you the game was uh, the game uh, where the Dolphins. It was a Thanksgiving game. It was the Dolphins, who I was a huge fan. I was die. I was a 10-year-old kid watching my idol, Bob Greasy, play, and he lit up the Cardinals for six touchdown passes in a game. Now, mind you, that was on Thanksgiving Day for there was a couple of years where the Cardinals were the home team for Thanksgiving. And so that's where it started. And uh, But I didn't see my first NFL game until my second year of graduate school. What and was that, it? Was a, that was a Colts-Dolphins game in Indianapolis, I think in 19... 19- it had been 1990. So now, are, do you still follow the Dolphins? I mean, did that fandom stick with you? No, Go no. Ahead. After Greasy retired, after Zonka retired, because Zonka came back with the Dolphins in '79. So I was too, I was too young to, you know, fall in love with the '72 Dolphins. But you know, Zonka came back in '79. So at least I got to say, I, I could say to myself, "Hey, I got to see Zonka play," and. Yeah. Uh, so, but after Greasy retired, after Zonka retired, that's where 
I drifted back to drifted back to the Bears, you know, mm-hmm. who are on my hometown team. And then about 91, I was in Phoenix. I was kind of, you know, I was young. I think it was about 25, 26, about ready to go and do Army basic training. And, you know, just kind of, you know, I latched onto the Cardinals. And I think part of the reason why I latched onto them was at the time, even still now to a certain point, they are the one team that's constantly disrespected, at least by fandom. Now, back then, I mean, nobody was rooting for the Cardinals. They had just moved from St. Louis. So, and there was also something too about that original Cardinal uh, logo that I, I love and still love. Who was the uh, the player that whenever they moved to Phoenix, they were playing, they upset the Vikings. I don't know if they had won a game that year, but he caught like a touchdown on the sideline, I think at the very end of the game. I, I don't, I don't remember who, the receiver who, who just off the top of my head. I don't remember the receiver who caught the ball. I do know. I remember the quarterback who threw the ball and that was, um, Oh God. Um, Josh McCown. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, cause I, I think it was the Packers needed the Vikings to lose that game to get into the playoffs right. and the Vikings were on fire that year and they blew yep. it. Yeah. yeah. And after that game, the receiver, they paid his way up to Green Bay for the playoff game. Oh, really? Yeah. And he, if I, if I remember the news report correctly, he was dressed in Cardinal gear. So everybody knew who he was and he was a celebrity for the day up there. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, he certainly played a big part in it. Now, what about the, uh, the CFL fandom with you? When did that kind of come into the picture and how did the game appeal to you in ways that American football didn't? Uh, Okay. So my, where I learned about Canadian football was in the library right now, back, you know, growing up when I was in school back in the eighties, I mean, we didn't have obviously internet. All we had was the library and all you could do was really read about the game. I mean, there was nothing to see on TV. The CFL came on briefly, but in the States when I was a kid during that strike, but the ratings were so bad. And I'll be honest with you. I don't remember watching any of those games. I actually, I couldn't even tell you what I was up to. I was in high school, but as I got older, and I started getting exposure to it, at least on ESPN. I, I, you know, when I watch a game, I'm like, this is a pretty cool game. And just reading about a lot of the heroes up there, just kind of kind of gravitated towards it because it is, in many ways, uh, a very much an underdog league, as, as we all know now, with everything that's happened with the pandemic. And there's something about Canadian football, its relation to the fans, the relationship to its communities that we just don't get here and that we used to have here in the States, but we don't have now. And guys that play in the CFL are pretty much working Joes. So in the same way that like Bob Greasy got you into the NFL, who were like some of the players that got you into the CFL when you started watching? When I started watching and learning about, you know, the great players would be the one person who I can tell you off the top of my head, who I did not see play, but, you know, who I'd heard stories and seen highlights, you know, once YouTube started coming around was Matt Dunnigan. And uh, we did an interview on our show on the, from the 55 with Matt Dunnigan. And it was, it was, it was, a, it was an awesome two hours. That's about the only way to describe it. And uh, you know, there've been other players along the way, but in terms of just one specific player that I, I loved watching, not really one in particular, just pretty much the style of play and, you know, learning the history, for me, part of it too, is learning the history of Canada through sport. And that's always been an enjoyable part for me of any 
type of thing I get involved in, whether it be on the military side. Um, when I was an intel officer learning about, you know, various militaries I was involved with around the world, learning about the history, the background. So for me, that's where the my love of the CFL grew, was learning not just about the players who played, but also, you know, learning about the culture itself. And, you know, there's a lot that Canada has to offer that we don't have, you know, as a, is I should say, let me take that back. There's a lot of things about Canada we as Americans can learn and how to be true fans. Because sometimes I think it's down here, down here in the States, we're kind of like, you know, we forget about the history of the game. Yeah. I think there's definitely a certain detachment among fan bases, no doubt. I mean, even if you read kind of books like uh, three bricks shy of a load or the forgettables, you'll see like that right. sort of the, the average Joe and being out at the, uh, the local bar after the game and you get people there who will talk to them. I mean, I, when yeah. I was in Atlanta, I, uh, I was at a barbecue and there was a guy who, when he was in college worked up in uh, Wisconsin as a, as a bartender and Brett Favre came to Lambeau that weekend for the first time coming back and him and the offensive lineman and a few other people on the team bought the bar out for the night. So they didn't have anybody come in, which I guess in certain regards, I can understand being that it was far going back to Lambeau, but I think that does kind of highlight how the game has gotten so big and so corporatized that it's hard to really identify too much with people that play. Right. Right. And, you know, for me growing up, I mean, always heard the stories about the Baltimore Colts Mm -hmm. and, you know, I've always equate, I've always, you know, Baltimore, obviously, is the only town that has is won a CFL, NFL, and USFL championship. And you hear the stories about what I told my wife, told this to my wife the other day. She was asking, is there any place you would really want to travel to? Because we've been doing a lot of traveling lately. I go, well, 1960s Baltimore is really about the one place where I would love to go to, but we can't go back there anymore because of the Colts, because of the time and place, because of the relationship of the team to its fans. And like you said about Brett Favre, you know, buying out a bar and kind of closing. No, I mean, back then, hey, Johnny Unitas and all the players drank with the fans. There was a, and so that's the other, and getting getting back to what we were talking about with why I love the CFL, there's still that relationship that CFL players have with the fans up there. Yeah, well, I think to your point too about looking at, or using a sport to kind of learn also about a nation of culture and history in and of itself. Whenever I was doing the episode about football in Japan, or I guess even earlier than that, when I wrote the article for the website, I learned a lot about World War II and about, you know, the country before the war um, and about the occupation more than I had ever learned through, you know, school or just, you know, personal interest, anything like that. So it is a, you know, I think sports in and of itself or whatever you're interested in is a great way to sort of go beyond just learning about that topic and learning about the surrounding history um, that it revolves around. Right. No, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Japanese baseball and within the next year or two, my wife and I are going to be moving back to Japan. And for me, you know, football, you know, American gridiron football in Japan, baseball in Japan, those are going to be my conduits to understanding better the culture that I'm in. Yeah. Now, did did your CFL, um, fandom kind of coincide with your passion for the CFL game itself. Because for, for me personally, I was into the NFL before I really got deep involved in like the actual game itself, if that makes sense, like learning about the evolution of the rule books and the strategy. So would you say the two were kind of coincided with each other? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. They coincided. I mean, 
you spend enough time in, in a library as a kid, you can only read the encyclopedia articles so many times on, on Canadian football until, you know, I mean, even now up until this season, I really, up until this season, I really didn't have a favorite team. And for at one point I just decided, Hey, the BC lions are my team. And it had maybe and it had something to do with, you know, of all the teams that are out there, they're, they're, I, I joke with Reed um, Johnson over at the Marcast. I go, well, they're not America's team, but they're British America's team. So ever since then, I've, you know, been rooting hard for the lions, but much like being a Detroit Lions fan, eh, being a BC Lions fan seems to be uh, much like an Arizona Cardinal fan. Expect disappointment, but hope for the best. What would you say is the good starting point for someone who wants to learn about Canadian football history? Um, you know what? I would say the Grey Cup because the Grey Cup is the one game where, you know, not going to pull any punches. The attendance at CFL games is it, not like what it is here in the States with the NFL. Um, it's much akin to, you know, kind of being in a White Sox game where it's mostly empty seats often, but the great cup, if you're looking for the introduction to what the sport is, to what the Canadian football is all about and also what it means to Canada, that would be the great cup. What about going back to like even Harvard McGill, would you look at that as like a sort of early point oh, yeah. for people to kind of look at? Cause I thought it was interesting how the the two histories coincided and then kind of split apart for a little while because I I can't speak for the CFL too much, but it's like that game kind of broke American football off from rugby because of the snapback and they buy there for the line of scrimmage. So I'm curious if there's a history there with when uh, Canadian football actually began a distinct identity from rugby union. Oh yeah. Yeah. And um, you know, you look at the history of, you know, even though the CFL, technically has only been a league for what 60 some years i mean the teams themselves go back well over 100 years in some cases and there's there's a there's a and i've learned that you know especially in this last year with the pandemic spending a lot of time reading up on canadian football history there's just so much history there that we as that fans in general and probably even canadians don't know in terms of the players uh, deep history of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. You look at the Edmonton team and you look at Toronto and uh, even BC. BC's not the youngest. Well, they are not, they're no longer the youngest team. The Red Blacks are the youngest team. But in each city, there is a distinct football culture and a distinct set of heroes that when I talk to CFL fans, I, I will lose my, I will get lost with names. It's like I've never heard that name before. And so when I'm, um, Howie Mooney and I had a long conversation about a month ago on our, on our podcast and he just, you know, throwing all these names at me and I'm writing them down. It's like, I did not know about these people, um, did not know about these players and, uh, Winnipeg, you've got some great players, some great teams up there that listening to the stories are like, and also looking back and kind of comparing the talent in a historical perspective, some of these teams, I would venture to guess, could have beat some of the best NFL teams back, say, in the 30s and the 40s, just based upon the talent. The talent was a lot more equitable, I guess, but way back when, um, you know, prior to, say, 1960. And now these teams before it actually became the CFL, were they just local um, club teams that would have to you know, make their own schedules or did were there a different leagues at the time that kind of consolidated into the CFL? 
Well, you had the western, you had the western, uh, the western provinces, and you had the eastern provinces. And so for a while, you had both both sets of the country. Uh, there really wasn't an interlocking schedule. I mean, where a lot of the teams met up, you started having you know a nationwide, you know, a, equivalent of the Super Bowl was the Grey Cup, and um, but it was in the 1940s and. And that's when the the Grey Cup started becoming more of a, I guess, a, a truly national event than um, than what it was before. But a lot of those teams that you know you're looking at Winnipeg, Toronto. Toronto is the oldest professional football team um, in North America, and wow. the Hamilton Tiger Cats obviously would fans of the Hamilton Tiger Cats would um, probably argue hard about that. But there, in Hamilton, there were two different teams that merged. So, I mean, the history of each of these, the teams in each of these towns, including like, say, the Red Blacks, goes back, you know, basically a century. When you mentioned that there was the, um, that some of the teams actually could have even beaten the NFL, wasn't there actually a game between Buffalo and a CFL team? There was a series of games in the 1950s and right through the 19, early 1960s where the NFL and CFL teams squared off. Mm. And you had the Bears, for instance, you had the Bears playing the Alouettes. You had the Chicago Cardinals playing the, and also the St. Louis Cardinals playing the Argonauts. You had um, the Giants. I think the Giants played the Rough Riders off the top of my head. And I, and I know you had um, Buffalo playing, and Buffalo playing the Hamilton Ticats were right across, obviously, you know, Buffalo and Hamilton are two cities that are, are very close. And that was the one and the NFL won all of those meetings with the CFL. The only American loss was when the Ticats beat the, the Buffalo Bills, who were obviously part of the AFL at the time. Now, was this like a uh, like first half is played under American football rules, second half played under CFL rules, or was yeah. it one yeah, game? Yeah, they mixed it up. Yeah, that would be interesting to see how some of the American players would have done with the forward motions and the multiple men in motion. I'm not sure if they had those rules at the time. Oh, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how, what it, it, I, you know, that's the, that's the frustrating thing about that period in time, other than what we have in the newspaper articles, we don't, I mean, there's very little footage of really what happened of any of those games. Yeah. There, there are some good YouTube channels that have old newsreels. Um, or maybe I shouldn't say newsreels. I mean, they kind of look like a highlight film, right? Um, but just cut down to like the plays uh, throughout the game. I mean, I've seen some from like the 1940, 41 championship game with the Giants and the Bears. So I have seen some interesting highlight footage uh, from football back at the time, but I don't know if I would find from like, ex- I mean, I'm, that was an exhibition games. Yeah. From, uh, and there is, I know, you know, I've seen it out there. The CBC did a, what a two minute, thing on that that series of games and there was some footage in there but you know not enough that you could kind of get a a feel of of what the game was actually like yeah i'm sure nfl films must have it somewhere it's even the vault oh yeah you well you would hope but even back then i mean that was before nfl films existed so so who knows it could be you know the great thing about youtube is you and i have discovered over over the years is you know, when people, you know, people have got footage of stuff that's buried in their attics. And oftentimes it's discovered by a much younger relative. And the next thing you know, it's uploaded. I mean, there's a holy grail of games out there. I know amongst my Canadian friends are like, oh, 
if I could only get this game. I mean, there's other games out there that are on YouTube, but, um, you know, every now and then you find a, a good one. A good example is, um, for me, in terms of the holy grail of football games, is um, the Earl Campbell Monday night football game with the Miami Dolphins. So which his, was his jerseys getting ripped off. Is that it? Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, that was classic Howard Cosa. That's when Monday night football meant something. And that of all the games was if you've got to pick a game that represented what Monday night football was in the seventies, it would be that game. Yeah. I, I didn't realize it until now, but I think one of the common themes that I get from guest to guest, not every week, but you know, typically conversations revolving around football history is just about how Monday night football used to be larger than life. It, it was. And, you know, a lot of that had to do with Howard Cosell. And I don't know how much you've read on Howard Cosell or even seen of Howard Cosell, but back in the seventies, everybody knew who Cosell was. I mean, he was irritating, but you love listening to him. It was, it was a love hate relationship with a lot of fans, but I know as a kid, Hey, when Monday night came, Monday night football came on and Howard Cosell was on, it was a big event. But back in those days, we had four channels. Yeah. <laughs> so there was, we didn't have a whole lot of choices. Well, and plus what people also say, too, is that was the first time where you could see highlights from other games. Right. And the great thing about when Cosell did those highlights, he did them all ad lib. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And watching that stuff, and I, I'm, you know, much like Rich Eisen. I don't know if you've ever watched, you, I don't know how, how much you watch Rich Eisen or listen to him. Sure. But Rich Eisen's very much a Howard Cosell fan, uh, like me. And to to listen to the to him back in those games is to me as irritating as his voice can be to many. For me, it's like listening to John Facenda. I can't get enough of that voice talking about football. I don't know what it is. That's interesting. That's an interesting comparison. I'm not sure there's a lot of people that would have uh, made that too. Well, you know, I know there's a guy who, by the name of Matt North. Now, I love I'm, I love my music, too, and I love discovering new music. And there's a song out there by this guy by the name of Matt North. I was just sitting one day at work, just kind of, you know, needed some new music. And I just, I was looking for something. And I think I accident I typed in the word Cosell into Amazon Music, of all things. I think I was looking for some something football related. And this great song came up called Cronkite and Cosell. And Matt North, who's a singer-songwriter, talks about that time period I grew up in where, you know, Walter Cronkite was your was your most trusted source of news. And um, Howard Cosell, when Howard Cosell came on, you listened. And it's a, it's a great song that kind of evokes kind of that time period back in the 70s where that's kind of most of us how we got either our news or our sports news. Yeah, Cosell, I haven't done a real deep dive on. I mean, there are some funny stories that I've heard just from uh, reading different books about him, little snippets here and there. I think there is a biography that was written about him in the 90s. I'm not sure if the author... Oh, there's, I've, I've got several of his books. And oh, yeah. uh, if you're looking at anybody's listening here who's, who's interested, type in the greatest Cosell story ever told on YouTube. And mm-hmm. it's a story that Billy Crystal tells. Oh, yeah. It's, 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 it's just an awesome story. <laughs> Yeah, I'll look it up and post the link in the uh, description. But from what I understand, he kind of had a falling from grace from the sports broadcasting, or I guess sports oh, yeah. as well, didn't he? Like, I, I'm not yeah, really he, sure what happened. Yeah, he just he became a bitter man at the end. You know, you listen, you hear people talk about him now, and, you know, 
you know, his, his wife passed away. Yeah. He was just bitter at the end towards people he worked with. He was a bit of a fragile ego. Which I think a lot of the people who have the loudest voice are usually. Right. And, yeah. but he was good at, I mean, he was great at what he did, but you know, he, uh, you know, he, uh, he was also the, you know, he also did USFL games too. And he was involved. Um, he's the reason why Doug Flutie, I mean, he was Doug Flutie's agent um, hmm. and negotiated with Trump to, oh, to yeah. land the, the deal he did for, for Flutie. So, um, you know, respected, but at the end, yeah, I mean, he, he pissed off for like part of my language, but he pissed off a lot of people he worked with because he pretty much threw them all under the bus in his final book. That kind of adds to his own mythology though. <laughs> yeah. So whenever we spoke last week about uh, Matt Dunnigan and you said that he was the CFL's equivalent of Terry Bradshaw, that kind of made me curious about some other CFL equivalents to NFL legends. And I have a few here that if you could uh, kind of connect the dots between these NFL legends and their CFL counterparts, I'd be kind of curious to see what you could come up with. And there's only about six of them, but the first one I had was Deacon Jones. Angela Mosca. Why? Just that reputation for toughness. What did he kind of um, change the rules to in terms of like head slaps or, you know, physicality? Uh, you know, I don't know if he changed the rules at all, at all, but I know in, in talking about, you know, defensive players over the years in the CFL, Angela Mosca to me has that legendary status as Deacon Jones, kind okay. of like Deacon Jones, Dick Buckus all combined in one. That's a frightening <laughs> picture to imagine. Yeah. Now, what about Randy White? Randy White, uh, you know, that's a good question. I don't know. I don't know. I don't got an equivalent for you off the top of my head. Would Mean Joe Green be a better? Could be. Candidate. With Angela Mosca? Yeah. Yeah, it could be. Um, yeah, I really don't know. What about Larry Wilson? Oh, another one I don't know. <laughs> Johnny, Johnny Unitas. Johnny Unitas. Now, see, there with the quarterbacks, especially in the CFL, because it's such a pass-oriented game. Sure. Um, you know, you got Russ Jackson, Ron Lancaster. Um, when you talk about CFL quarterbacks, those are the two that, boom, come to mind right off, the, you know, during that 60s and 70s era. For them, was it an instance where they kind of pioneered, like, what the game was turning into or kind of foreshadowed in that same sense? Yeah, I think – foreshadowed and also too i mean they were you know for um to use a john melkan quote um they were big legends in little towns you know um ron lancaster he played you know i mean ron i mean when you talk about to anybody that i talk to on the canadian side about the greatest quarterbacks in cfl history those two are right at the top of the list Mm. you know along with warren moon and then you know, now we've got Bo, Le- Bo Levi Mitchell, um, you know, Mike Riley and, and those guys that are playing now, but, um, and talking with, and talking about CFL history, th- you can't talk about CFL history without talking about Lancaster um, or Jackson, just their impact on the game. Wasn't there also a, a Harold Grange back in the early CFL days as well? Oh boy, I don't know. I actually, I remember catching five minutes of a CFL documentary and they talked about the other Red Grange. I don't know. I'd have to look yeah. that up. So that's the, the fir- 
That's that's funny because it's you know you and I, you know I grew up on American football history and so now learning as much as I can about the Canadian side, even though because we really didn't even have too much access. When you go to American Library, you're not looking you know to get books on Canadian football. Still a hard get, and there's not you know you've got a ton of books on American football history, but there's just a small selection of Canadian football history books too. The internet obviously has changed things, but so I'm still learning. What would you say thus far that you've read is the quintessential Canadian football book? Um, anything by Frank Cosentino. He wrote a great book called The Passing Game, which, um, and he's, you know, that book just kind of covers Canadian football from its beginnings to about the mid 70s when, you know, the World Football League was coming in or threatening to come into Canada and the Canadian parliament was threatening to basically pass a legislation to keep American football teams out of, of Canada. Um, let me see here. And Paul Woods wrote, has written two great books. Um, he wrote, a, he's written a book on the 91 Argos and the, and the early eighties Argos who won the gray cup. And uh, I have not read the, the 91 yet, the 91 book yet. And everybody I've talked to said, you got to read it. It's just awesome. Um, but he's pretty much, you know, when it comes to football historians, him, Frank Cosentino, um, and there's a few others, and I just don't remember them off the top of my head. I've got all their books up in my, up in my reading room. Um, I think the passing game might be on my reading list. I mean, yeah. that one, that, that's more of a, I mean, it does document the game, but it's also very much about the boardroom battles and the CFL. Right. Yeah. I, right. after I read uh, the league by David Harris, which is predominantly about the boardroom battles within the NFL during Roselle's right. era, I was really interested in finding another book that was like that because, you know, I never really seen a book that went bad deep into the business side of the NFL and ownership battles. And that was actually something that came up and I never have gotten the book yet, but you know, now that you mentioned it, it kind of reminds me of my interest in reading that one. And there's another one end zones and border wars. That's about, about the American expansion, right? Yes. Yeah. And to me, you know, when during that whole XFL, CFL speculation, that was the one book that I kept referencing to people, especially on the American side, because mm-hmm. the people, those who, you know, CFL fans went already went through one American expansion and it didn't go well. And so to try to, and that was, you know, trying to, trying to explain to Americans down here kind of what the CFL is all about. And, you know, just don't, you know, I was defending the CFL side saying, listen, just because it's, it's American doesn't mean it's better. I'm like, well, here, read this book. And uh, it, it's surprising that, uh, you know, the one thing about history is in order to learn from history, you got to read about history. And that's where the lessons of that American, you know, when they came down here and they brought the Canadian game down to the States, there's some great lessons learned. Whenever I was writing the article for my website about the history of pro football in Las Vegas before the Raiders, I did a little research on the Las Vegas posse. Yeah. And it just sounded like that was a shit show from the get go. I mean, they were practicing in a, uh, in a parking lot right next to the Tropicana hotel and casino. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. And then actually the book's got some great stories about Ron Meyer. He's the, the, he's <laughs> the, that was the coach. Was that right? coach. Yeah. Yeah. 
Apparently, didn't the quarterback for that team actually go on to like um, break passing records in the CFL? Anthony Calvillo. Yeah. 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 yeah that, that He's was... another one of those guys on, on the Mount Rushmore of, of great quarterbacks in the CFL that, you know, as we were talking just a little bit ago. Wow. You know, I completely did a, a my, you know, completely had a, you know, I blanked out on. Yeah, it was it, it was funny. I mean, when he when I was watching the broadcast and there was talk about them moving to Sacramento or maybe like another location, I don't remember where, but right. you had the broadcasters that said uh, players say they played in front of more people in high school <laughs> than they right. had for this game. Well, and the thing with the Canadian experiment down here was, and this is, you know, as we're kind of moving along and there's always this talk about the next spring league is the marketing research, whether it's going to sell or not it was clear when the CFL came to the States that nobody had researched anything. Mm-hmm. And the fact that, and, and just by sheer luck, the team of Baltimore was for all practical purposes, a success, a moderate minor success, but a success. It was, you know, the reason why that happened was because of a confluence of the player strike, Baltimore getting turned down for an NFL expansion you know, so the you know fans of Baltimore had nothing really to watch. Stallions show up. You know, they just got turned down by the NFL. So, but you know, you're not gonna. That was you're not gonna. It's hard to capture lightning in a bottle twice. Yeah, I haven't gone too deeply into the Stallions lore, but it does seem to me that if it was any other city where they had had the success, it probably wouldn't have done that well. Just because I think the relationship yeah. that the city of Baltimore had with the NFL at that time, they were willing just to support anything but the NFL. Right. Well, and the other part of that too, was that that team did have the blessing of the old Colts too. Yeah. Johnny Unitas. Yeah. Tom Maddie, he was part of that. He was part of that group. Um, you know, who, um, you know, so you, so you, they had the blessing of the old Colts, but and the frustrating part is, is, you know, there's still a segment out there and it's even still happens in Canada where they see Canadian football as inferior product to what's put out, you know, to what we play down here in the States. Yeah, it's funny you bring that up because when I was living in Atlanta, I was at a beer festival and there was a guy that was from Canada who, I don't know if he had moved to the U.S. or if he was just down in Atlanta doing a construction gig. And I asked him, like, do you go to any uh, Canadian football games? Because he was talking about hockey. Uh, And he said, yeah, I've been to a few, but most people prefer the NFL just because it's a better product. I'm kind of curious. I mean, based off your, um, you know, your research and your conversation, is that the sentiment that most people would give you? Yeah. Yeah, really? pretty much. I mean, your CFL fans are hardcore who have been fans since they were kids. But the problem with the CFL fandom is we're kind of, you know, it's aging out. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I play simulation football. We've got the same issue in our sim leagues. You know, all the guys in my sim leagues are in their 60s and 70s. And for somebody like me, it's in his mid 50s. I'm kind of the young guy of the bunch. So the really? problem with the CFL, yeah. So the problem with the CFL is it's kind of the same thing. They're just not attracting the new fans. Like, you know, the way they attracted young fans back in, say, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Yeah, that almost seems similar to the problem that baseball has right now in America. Oh, yeah. 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 And, you know, baseball is another good example. I mean, people, I don't think, really recognize it. I mean, I've seen, you know, you don't see it here in Chicago if you go to a Cubs game. You see, I mean, it's the Cubs. There's something about, but you go on the South side to a Sox game and you see that fact, you see that baseball is kind of losing fans. I mean, it's not cheap, obviously to go to games anymore, but and that's the other problem with the CFL. I mean, in many, in many ways they're, they're pricing the, 
pricing the the average fan out of stuff. I mean, the NFL is priced us all out anyway. Yeah. Um, you know, we're hearing that argument. You know, the Bears are talking about building a new stadium up in Arlington Heights, and you know, when they when that thing does get built, guys like you and I, it's going to be. You know, we're gonna it's, we're gonna have to budget out for just one game. Oh, certainly. As far as the relationship between the NFL and the CFL, at what point in the CFL's history do you think that it became this sort of, you know, quote unquote, unofficial development league for the NFL? Like Probably, at the point yeah. where you had a lot of guys that were, you know, kind of uh, taxi squad guys going up there to get more experience. When do you think that really started kind of fermenting? I think that really started happening after. I would say probably about the nineties. I mean, it was happening even before then, mm. but I mean, when the money really started to take off in the States with football, the CFL kind of got left in the dust in terms of revenue stream. So I don't really specific, but it's been within the last say 30 years because there was a time where guys would not go to Joe Theismann, a good example. He, you know, he was drafted by the dolphins. Mm-hmm. Back during the Bob Greasy era, he was supposed to be the heir apparent to Bob Greasy. You know, Argonauts offered him more money. Mm. He went north. Yeah, there was a there was a Pro Football Researchers Association article I read a couple of years ago. Uh, it was an older article, but it was talking about the bidding war in the 1950s between the CFL yeah. and the NFL. And I had never given it much consideration because I, I just kind of figured that back in that, those days, there was probably a little crossover. But for the most part, right. it didn't really lead to any all-out bidding war and obviously it was never as big as the AFL NFL but I thought it was an interesting piece of history that I never really considered yeah well and back then too you didn't have TV money it's when the TV money really started to take off is where you saw things kind of like starting to separate because the CFL yeah they've got a TV contract but you know their TV contract with TSN is you know it's it's five million per team Hmm. So, okay, so you divide that by, you know, not you know, times that by, that's still less than what many players make on teams. Yeah. So you got 45, say 45 million TV, you know, TV contract. Well, how you're playing your star players, like, you know, double that. Yeah. I don't know if I have this right, but wasn't it, didn't one of the sponsors pull out I don't know if it was a TV sponsor. I think one of the beer companies up in uh, Canada pull out, and that's when they had to kind of expand in America to rely on the expansion fees. Right, yeah. Like. I think it was Carling O'Keefe that that pulled out. Yeah. And and that's where, going back to talking about Paul Woods, um, Paul Woods makes the argument that John Candy is the one who ultimately saved the CFL. John Candy? John Candy. So back in the 90s, you know, when he was part of that ownership group, he was the one that was kind of, he was advocating for American expansion hmm. and he started the American, you know, the, the, an expansion committee. Now, obviously he passed away, you know, right after his ownership in the, in the Argonauts, but he was the one that pushed that. And I know Paul and I, we, and Arshan, we had, we were talking about Paul's first book, um, you know, kind of makes that argument. And it's a valid argument that without John Candy, cause I mean, again, the CFL has always been money, I don't want to say money deficient. I mean, they're really operating on a shoestring. Mm-hmm. And there was a point right after the American expansion stuff ended that 
there was a real question where they were going to make it to the next season. Cause I mean, they were literally operating on a shoestring. Now they're, they're a single entity ownership, right? There's no individual owners that own franchises. No, that's the problem. There's nine individual owners. I think that has, because if you had a single entity, I think the CFL would be in much better financial shape. Has it always instead, been that, has it always been that way the that yeah. that structure? Okay. Yeah, it's always been that way. Always been that way. So in the CFL you have six teams that are owned either by groups or groups or individuals mm-hmm. and then three other teams that are owned by the communities that they're in. So you've got Winnipeg, Edmonton and the Rough Riders, they're owned by the community. And then you've got six other teams that had individual owners whether they be just one person, say, out in British Columbia or in Toronto where you've got MLSE that owns not just the Argonauts, but the Raptors, the the Maple Leafs, the uh, the soccer team out there. So you've got got nine different owners, and that does make much like the NFL. In the NFL, when it comes to the ownership and the relationship, the owners and the commissioner, you know, in the NFL, there's a strong commissioner. You don't really have a strong commissioner in the CFL. Does At least C- in my opinion. Does the CFL have an equivalent to Pete Rozelle? <sighs> no, I don't think so. No. no, I don't think so. Just well, you look at the number of commissioners they've had. I mean, Pete Rozelle. Then maybe that's not maybe that's not yeah. fair for me to ask because Rozelle is really one a generational commissioner. But, right. No, I but mean, they haven't had a generational. They haven't had a generational commissioner. To, I mean, if they did, I think you wouldn't have the CFL having the issues that it does. I mean, you know, Randy Obrosi's a nice guy. I, 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 we all know he is, but he just doesn't have the ability to wield the authority that Pete Rozelle was handed back in 1960 by George Hallis and the old school owners to, you know, compete with the AFL. And that's a reason I think why Pete Rozelle had so much power was because of the threat of the AFL. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. So with with that said, I mean, do you, would you say that there was um, ever what people would consider a golden age of the CFL? I think in talking with a lot of my friends, especially those my age, I would say the sixties and the seventies, because back then you had full stadiums. And then, you know, once the eighties, it was the eighties that be kind of began that long, slow decline to kind of where we're at now, where uh, the, you occasionally you'll have a full stadium somewhere, but when you watch a game, I mean, there's more, oftentimes there's more empty seats than there are people in the stands. Edmonton being a classic example of that and same with Toronto. And these are te- and these are towns, especially Toronto. I mean, Toronto is one of the founding members is the oldest pro football team on the continent, but yet, you know, they struggle to, to fill a stadium and put even 10,000 people in it. Now, where does Canadian football kind of fit in the pop culture conversation? Because, I mean, obviously hockey dominates up there, and, you know, I'm not really sure, you know, what else would constitute, you know, uh, pop culture in Canada. But, you know, if you go to a bar up in Canada, not that you live there, but, I mean, do you right. often find that you you could find people having a conversation about, uh, you know, CFL games that are being played that weekend or, you know, where does it kind of really fit into the bigger picture of their culture? I, and I think, you know, and, I, and if I'm wrong, I hope somebody corrects me on it, but, and just in talking and talking to people following the Canadian news. So back in the States, you know, for the longest time you had 
football is number one, baseball is number two, basketball is number three, and NHL is number four. Well, that whole order has been, you know, NFL is still number one. NBA, NBA and NHL probably competing for that number two slot, and baseball is at number four. The CFL is probably the number four sport up there because, you know, hockey is always going to be number one. Sure. Well, you've got, you know, the Toronto Raptors. They're, they're, can't, they're Canada's team. And baseball would probably be number – but then you've got soccer. So you've got five major sports now. And I, I apologize. I should have mentioned MLS. But MLS is, is number five here in terms of popularity. Mm-hmm among spectator sports, but MLSE, I'm sorry, MLS is um, much more popular than at least getting people in the stands than uh, say the CFL on the flip side, when it comes to TV ratings, the CFL is still a popular sport. Well, I think even if we're talking about what we mentioned earlier about people enjoying the NFL as a product, I mean, could you even argue that that number five spot would probably, or that number four spot would be a tie between MLS soccer and NFL before Canadian football? Yeah. 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 Interesting. Yeah. Does, uh, what about like Canadian college football? Is that a thing at all up there? Well, it, it is. The problem is you can't find it on TV. And even Canadians will tell you, I'd love to watch it, but it's where can I find it? I mean, they yeah. play it, and there's some, there's a lot of talent that that's up there, but it's just visibility. Yeah, certainly. I mean, it seems like probably streaming is the only way that you would find it. Right. But even then, just even trying to find, uh, as they call it, their U-sports is, yeah. is hard. I mean, it's kind of like with the Japanese X-League. Until YouTube came along, nobody knew what, that there was football in Japan. Let's, that's a good segue to your history with Japanese football and uh, your time in Japan, because you lived over there for quite a while, yeah? No, I, I didn't. I met my wife over there. I was on a trip. This was like 25, yeah, 27 years ago. So that's how I met my wife. Okay. And, um, you know, during, you know, I've always known they played X-League football over there. But again, it's one of those things where, you know, it's being, being Japanese, there's not a whole lot in English being written about it. Mm-hmm. Now, when so you... as the internet, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead and finish. Oh, but as the internet has evolved, you know, um, X league and Japanese college football has been, is on YouTube and the browser software has evolved to the point where, you know, you can just hit the translate button and kind of get a gist of what's going on over there. When did you first find out that they did play American football in Japan? Oh God, I can probably, probably right about the time I got married. Okay. But this is going way back. Yeah. Have you been to a game? No, no, never been to a game. Watched a lot of games on YouTube and, yeah. uh, but never been to a game, but more where my wife is from. Um, it's not really near anywhere. I want to say uh, readily accessible. Okay. So any, any game I would go to over there would be at least maybe a one or two hour train ride. Oh, really? Okay. Hey, you and I are in the same boat in terms of uh, really being exposed to the sport from YouTube. And really, I didn't really give it much uh, consideration. But 
the way I found out about it was I had gotten a, a book from my parents for Christmas called um, Touchdown and American Obsession. And it's essentially like a, a collection of academic papers published about football. Really? Yeah. And they had an international section that talked about um, various different countries that had American football, whether it was Germany, Latin America, China, even. And they had one about football in Japan. And that by far was the most you know in-depth research that went into uh, that portion of the book. And ever since then, you know, I went on YouTube and started looking at footage of them playing and it was incredible, especially to find a lot of the games from, you know, even the late seventies. I mean, because yeah. most of the games I'd actually be willing to say I've seen are probably from the mid eighties until probably the mid nineties. Yeah. And then and when it's, you, and, go ahead. Oh, and over there, it's a club sport. I mean, it's a, a very, I mean, the CFL, you know, we're talking the rankings, mm-hmm. you know, like with CFL, the CFL saying being number five, Man, American football is like number 46 down in Japan. Um, oh, definitely. You know. yeah. yeah. So, I mean, there is a following. and um, But it's but a passionate following. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's what I love about watching it. Because, number one, most of the players are all amateurs. Mm-hmm. Even though, you know, the X League, you know, the X League is not a professional football. I mean, the, the there are guys on the team who are paid, and those are the guys that come over from overseas that are paid to, to play on the teams. But in general, all those players, they're playing for free. They're playing for the love of the game. Sure. I think I remember seeing this on uh, Twitter sometime back about the current dynamic, the playing dynamic, how they play for their companies and their employers is sort of similar to how it was in the early NFL era in like the 1920s. Yeah, yeah. And even then, right now, I mean, a lot of the company teams are going away. There's only a couple company sponsor teams over in Japan. I mean, you do a lot of the guys that I think uh, Panasonic and Fujitsu are the, the, still the, the purely company teams, We're whereas not, a lot of the IBM. other teams that are still club. Yeah, I don't know. If, you know, I don't think IBM is a complete company team anymore. I mean, they've got sponsorship. But a lot of these guys come in, you know, even though, say, for example, IBM is on the helmet, the guys that are playing don't necessarily work for IBM. Gotcha. When do you think the, for a while, college football was really a much better product than the X League was? Um, When do you think the transition really began between the power structure going from college to the X League? Oh God! I mean, that that'd be a good question to field to John Gunning with uh, the Japan Times, who's part of our podcast team. But in just kind of and speaking with him, it's been within the last say twenty years. Yeah. There's been a disparity of talent. So just recently, um, up and up until this, I think it was this past year, the final culmination Japanese football championship was played between the X League champion and the college champion. So we'll just use the American equivalent, okay? So let's say let's put the Buccaneers against uh, who won the college championship last year? I can't even remember. It's it's Bama. Was it Bama? That's what I thought. So imagine the Buccaneers and Alabama going against each other. I mean, it just the I mean, yes. I mean, well, there would be those who who probably would would advocate saying Alabama's a bit of a pro team anyway. But I, they're still not going to compare. Yeah, right. They're not going to compare. So they stopped. So after this, this, yeah. So the um, the X League champion now is you've got two separate champions. You've got the pro championship, 
or the X League championship and the college championship, the teams are not meeting anymore for the ultimate championship because it got to the point where somebody was going to get hurt on the college level. Sure. Because even if you watch in the, the last championship, there's such, it's like when Notre Dame plays Navy. Mm-hmm. And having been to a couple of those games and been on the f- close to the field during warmups, you can see the size difference. It's like, ooh, you know, and no wonder why Navy, you know, loses often by, you know, 30 points because there's such a size difference and just it's so, yeah. So just get that, that to answer that question. Yeah. That's uh, the, but the, so in the last 20 years, I'd say. Yeah. The, the former coach for the KG fighters, uh, Hideaki Toriyuchi. I mean, he's like the winningest coach in Japanese football history. I think he has 12 national championships and he was talking about, you know, how do you see the sport kind of evolving moving forward after your retirement? He just says, I don't think they're going to be playing with the pros anymore or against the pros in championship games because the disparity has gotten right. so big. Yeah. I mean, it just, you watch the game. I mean, you watch the game and it's like, yeah, somebody's going to get hurt. Yeah, certainly. And especially, I think they were, I think it was against Fujitsu the last game and the Fujitsu guys were huge compared to the guys that played, you know, on the college side. Do you notice a distinct style of play when you watch these Japanese football games? Yeah, it's a bit of a it's it's very much I want to say compared to the way the game is played in the eighties here. It's so? very balanced. A lot of run, a lot of power. Yeah, really it's a little bit of both. Balance. It's very, you know, it's not necessarily one style, but it's a mixture of both. And um, you know, over there, I've seen them still use fullbacks. Yeah, it's interesting how you. Um, how you mentioned today kind of looks like the eighties, but when you look at the games that we were talking about earlier from the mid eighties to the mid nineties, it almost feels like football circa, I guess in some ways it was more contemporary, like as what we have now, but it was also retro like 1930s. Cause they would, it looks like they're using like the short punt offense where they have a yeah. guy that's like, you know, seven yards back. And for those who, who don't know what I'm talking about, imagine a punt formation, but without a punter, you have a quarterback instead rather. And he's seven yards deep instead of the conventional 10 or 11 yards for a, a punter. But yeah, I mean, you know, they take those snap and they drop back easily 15 yards before they throw the ball. And it's yeah, funny to watch, yeah. you know, but that's what makes it unique. I mean, I like the fact that you can watch football in a different country and see the way they suit it to their own body types and their um, strengths, you could say. You know, the great thing about watching football, Jap, American football in Japan, same way with watching baseball is, even though it's an American, they're both American sports by birth. Mm-hmm. Jap, the Japanese have taken the sport and kind of, and not so much made it their own, but put their own spin on it that I kind of, I like to celebrate the difference. It's like, you know what? I like the fact that the Japanese are running the ball have a fullback out there much like in Japanese baseball they still bunt the ball oh yeah 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 it's uh if you've ever seen the movie Mr. Baseball uh with no. Tom Selleck if you're mm-hmm. looking for a good introduction pretty much into the mindset of, the, of Japanese when it comes to sport using baseball as the analogy with Tom Selleck it's perfect I know John Gunning when he is um you know when people have come over to Japan and he's recommended, hey, watch Mr. Baseball to get an idea of what it's like in Japan for an athlete coming over from the States. Okay. Yeah, I got to check that out then. It's just, uh, 
what you were talking about, how you celebrate the difference, I think that's especially what would be strong for football, right? I mean, we can kind of go with this with the like talking about spring leagues too, where I don't want a carbon copy of the NFL. Right. right. Like, g- g- give me something different. You know, I, I know people want to chalk it off as gimmicky football, but like, that's what I want. Right. And and I think, you know what? Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. For, for me, the only thing, like, I, I think that needs to be consistent when we're talking about like kind of creating off-brand football is that, you know, the ball can't be projected forward once it's past the line of scrimmage. Right. Like you can't like catch a forward pass and then 20 yards downfield and then throw it, kick it, right. butt it, whatever, you know, it's like once the ball crosses the line of scrimmage, that's it. But, you know, if, I, I would welcome a league where you could anybody could catch the ball behind the line of scrimmage or you could have multiple forward passes behind the line of scrimmage. And that's what the XFL had done whenever they came back in vogue in the uh, what was it, 2020 incarnation, 2019. Yeah. 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 yeah unfortunately, I missed that entire 2020 season just because I had in five weeks, I think at four, three or four of those weeks, I had military duty. So I wasn't able to watch any of the games. And I know I give the XFL guys a hard time, but I, I love their passion and, you know, their commitment. They want something different, which is why I love the CFL. It is something different. Um, but foot, when it boils down to it, it's football is still football, no matter if it's a three down variety. Um, and we haven't even talked about the indoor game with the arena league, mm. um, you know, six man football, another good example. Oh, it's amazing. It's, it's, it's amazing. So to me, um, I'm very much, I don't care what, how many guys are on the field, but as long as the foot, the ball stays the same, relatively the same shape, I'm going to love it either way. And, um, you know, Canadian football, Canadian football is unique in the fact that it, it, it had such a separate trajectory, separate trajectory in terms of how it evolved, but yet you watch it as an American and you still recognize you know, um, even though, you know, the third down, the three downs is hard for some people to get used to, but once you've kind of got used to that, you forget you're watching a different form of football. At least that's my experience. Yeah. They didn't really, they didn't institute the forward pass in Canadian football until like the 1920s. Right. I think so. Yeah. It's pretty late. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but you know the Canadian foot, uh, Canadian football, and being three downs. I mean, there's just a different skill set you have to have to play Canadian football, uh, and you have to be in better. You know, and we've talking with players, you got to be better conditioned. I mean, to play four down football is one thing, but to play three down football in a larger field where you've got less time between plays, um, the conditioning is different. Well, that was something that was interesting with your Kyle Dunnigan episode. Whenever he talked about, you know, you, sometimes you forget, but even something as simple as throwing an out route on a much wider field, you really have to kind of put a different spin yeah. on the ball. Yeah, yeah, and it's it just it's it's fascinating to learn those little things because us being down here, we don't. And I played football in high school, so I get you know get you know I I get a lot of it because you know I you know even though I wasn't a starter on a high school team, I did you know, I, I played every practice, every down in practice. So, um, you know, so to appreciate what those guys go through to condition and, and play at that level is just, you know, I went through army basic, I went through army basic training, went through combat training with the Navy. That was easy compared to in many ways going through football practice as a kid. Yeah. I think in some ways it prepared you. Yeah. Yeah. In some way. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for me, I mean, football has always been around whether or not, whether it's, whether or not it's been foremost in my mind, but I'm getting to that point in my life where, 
I can enjoy the sport and not only as a sport, but as a hobby to do the podcast, to play simulation football. Cause I'm at the end of a, of, of a very long wrapped up a military career, 30 years, about ready to wrap up a, a civilian career. So I'm at that next stage of my life where, and moving into Japan, move, say moving to Japan, you know, I'll be, hopefully, I'll be one of the few guys over there writing about the sport, you know, even though it's right now, it's going to be for my own little blog that doesn't cost anybody a dime. But for me, it's, even though it's a hobby, um, you know, in my remaining years being over, over in Japan, you know, that's what I want to do. I want to focus in on, you know, celebrating, you know, American football, even though I'm going to be on, on the other side of the world. What's uh, your blog's name? Uh, well, I've got a couple blogs, but we got cflamerica.ca and then we've got gridironjapan.net. So those are the two. And, you know, unfortunately with work being the way it is, and as you well know, it occupies so much of your time. It's just, it's hard to, it's hard to spend the time to post stuff. But once I retire, yeah, there'll be a lot more stuff written on, on both of them. What was the, going into this, you had sent me a, a review that you wrote of a George R. Martin. Um, okay. So the, what I the sent story. you, what, sorry, what, what I sent you was, was for my sports, simu, uh, sportsmaster dot simulation dot games um, website. And that was, I found it in the public domain. So I did a, rep- you know, did a copy and paste and printed it out of my own website. But it was George R. R. Martin's short story about called The Last Super Bowl. And it was about the rise of the demise of real football and the rise of simulation football, much like John Mann football. Interesting. Like, so like a virtual reality in some sense. Yeah. Yeah. And we're getting, and if you think about it, we're getting to that point, especially with esports, science fiction is a lot more to reality than what it was even, say, 10 years ago. Oh, well, you know, recently I've been looking at um, virtual reality headsets and I found a couple companies that actually uh, license their products. So they have partnerships with different NFL teams like the Cowboys or the Bears, and they use those simulation headsets for like uh, practice and preparation and reps. Like the so, one we see in that commercial with Ky- uh, Kyler Murray. Uh, yeah. Checking the ball in the locker room. Yeah, it's like you, you see these things at the at Super Bowls and you think it's just for like the fan experience, but they actually use it to simulate real game action. Right. And, and it's interesting to kind of uh, the idea of I don't want I don't know what you call it, just like playing the scenario over in your head. You know, yeah, it's like they say, like, if you envision yourself shooting uh, free throws, well, now it's right. like you have a, a much more concrete way to go about it. Well, I mean, to kind of give an equivalent back, and this is going way back now, what, what this year is, what this is, we're going to 2020. So we're talking about 15 years ago. So when I went through combat training to go to Iraq, we had virtual simulators, uh-huh. convoy simulators. Technology has improved much since then, because I know when I went into that thing, because of the lag and everything, I ended up falling out because my head started spinning. Mm-hmm. But we've gotten to the point with technology, we can do those things that, you know, we read about, you know, in stories like, you know, that short story by George R. R. Martin. Um, virtual reality is becoming ever present. And, you know, e-games, I mean, e-sports, I mean, I wouldn't really call e-sports a sport per se. It's more an activity, much like I would say golf is an activity, not a sport. <laughs> That's a whole nother argument. Right. Um, but we're at that point now where, 
listen, you don't have to be an athlete to enjoy, to truly enjoy the sport. You know, I mean, people that are disabled, I mean, that's a great thing about virtual reality and simulation. You know, you've got, you've got, you know, kids out there. And I was one of those kids too, that really didn't have a whole lot of athletic ability, but you've got kids out there that haven't even are, they're not even able to, to, to do the things you and I take for granted that can now, because of technology, be involved in sports. Be yeah, part well, of it and get that experience that, you know, back growing up, you had to, you know, you had to be physically able to do a lot of things. Well, even when I wasn't that into football, whenever I was probably from the age of 10 to, I don't know, 13 or 14, I still really enjoyed playing Madden with like my two best friends at the time who both had played football and they were both football nuts and kind of got me to be one eventually. Um, But, but, but it was still a fun activity and in some ways allows you to fall in love with the game, even if you don't play it, right? Like you can just, you can enjoy the game for its overall uh, strategy in a way and just the beauty yeah. of it without having yeah. to get bogged down actually playing it with like the fundamentals and stuff like that which right. in, in and of itself can give you a different appreciation for the game obviously but i feel like you can enjoy it the way you can enjoy a movie or, or something yeah you know? well and the benefit too of you know i do that with sim you know and i do sim football which is all pc based and it's all strategy it's like playing mm-hmm. you know for lack of a better term the star trek term it's like playing 3d chess yeah. And so I play that. I'm in three leagues and it's all PC based. But, you know, I know in playing man with, say, my nephew, my nephew's 18, I'd sit there and I'm like, dude, I cannot beat you. His mind, he is just, his football knowledge is so much better than mine because of man. He grew up on man. Right. Um, whereas him, he's doing all kinds of stuff and he's like, and I'm just there. I'm like, okay, power sweep, power sweep. Okay, maybe, 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 you know, maybe doing a slant over in the middle. I mean, he's just that much more advanced than I am. Though it is funny, I did beat him a couple times in NCAA football and he playing the controller. I go, no, your uncle beat you. Fair and square. Oh, that's an older game, though. So maybe he just didn't know how to make it. True, true. But it's those games, too. And just talking about it, hey, I'm going to be 55 years old. But when I play, when I sit down and play sim football, when I sit down and play man, when I sit down and talk to you podcast wise, um, when Scott and I do our interviews, Hey, we, it's like, we've literally turned back the clock and we're 13 year, you know, 12 and 13 year old guys again, or 16 year old guys enjoying the sport we grew up. It doesn't feel like we're that much older than, you know, say, you know, than, than you are. And I know, you know, I mean, you're old enough to be my son, so I can say that, but it, it does, football allows all of us to kind of, oh, there's a saying in terms of, um, you know, football allows young people to dream of glory, and it also allows older older people to remember what it was like. Oh, wow, that's a good one. I mean, well, that is interesting because it's like the internet on a broader scale has kind of bridged the gap between a lot of generations right i mean it's like sometimes i would say you know if i could live in a time it would be or if i could be born in a time it would be like the late 40s right because it's like you grew up through like the hot rod 50s and you know you have the counterculture of the 60s you know you kind of go through the grunts of the 70s you kind of come out of it with your own family in the 80s and then you have you know kind of the remnants and see them grow up in the 90s before the internet and technology age and then as you get older into this century you can kind of enjoy all the things about the past through technology yeah 
you know, so yeah. that's, that's kind of like the interesting part, how everybody has the same exposure now to a lot of different information. And obviously you can have a major case of information overload, but it, it does kind of put everyone on similar like social patterns in a way. Yeah, you're right. And I think it's interesting too, how it's like something like Madden kind of keeps the NFL uh, major or the NFL and the pop culture conversation, obviously outside of the actual product. And I think that's something where maybe right. other sports yeah. haven't done as well. NBA does pretty good with 2K, but yeah. I don't think MLB or hockey can produce a video game that makes it relevant still. Right. And, you know, you know talking about video games, I mean, that has always been, you know, we're talking about the Canadian football. It's always been the problem with the Canadian football league. They don't have a video game. And, you know, I've heard different, and I, I always get frustrated hearing all the reasons why something can't be done. And in this day and age, I would have thought by now that a, a league like the Canadian football, a league like, you know, a league like the CFL, with basically the financial cliff they're, they're facing, and with them not attracting new fans, would at a point, let's make a video game, let's get kids interested in the game again. And all I keep hearing is, well, it costs too much. It, it, it can't be, this can't. And I'm like, all right. And it's much like, you know, when I was in Iraq, hearing all the all the reasons why we couldn't do something. And obviously we saw what, you know, Iraq eventually fell apart because there was too many people, you know, right. at least in my opinion, saying, you know, all the ways you can't do things where, you know, some effort went into into doing some things maybe things could have succeeded same way with the CFL. If they just put some more effort into marketing and building that fan base, you know, like through a, a, a man game that is equivalent in graphics and style and everything. Yeah. Then I think the, the sport, the league itself has a chance of surviving, you know, well after I'm gone. Has there ever been a good CFL movie? No. Has there been no. any at all? No, no. I heard one's in development, but, you know, unless I've missed something and I'm pretty good at when it comes to movies and, you know, obviously, you know, I'm the one that recommends you go see Gus and, uh, and, uh, I can't thank you enough. <laughs> and also, uh, Paper Lion, which is still my favorite movie, which, like I said, did not have enough Lauren Hutton in it, but that's a whole nother subject. Um, but yeah, no, they don't have a movie. I mean, I know one is supposedly in development with Jake Plummer having a role in it, but I haven't heard anymore. Oh, okay. When you said Jake Plummer, I thought of the, um, the old, uh, Cardinals quarterback. That's, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. He's supposed to be in it. He's supposed to be, uh, that's, that's what I heard, but I haven't heard anything in months about where this project is, if it's in developmental hell. So I heard it was going to be on Netflix, but you know, who knows? Jake, the snake. That's something that used to be really interesting about the NFL too. It feels like they were a lot more proactive about their relationship with Hollywood and working with uh, producers to kind oh, of yeah. get the brand. I mean, obviously you have, you know, like Gus and uh, Paper Lion and right. uh, did you ever see number one with Charlton Heston? Yeah, I did actually after you and Oz did the, did that, uh, did your show. And, you know, I think I'd, I saw a picture of him like Charlton Heston in the Saints uniform, but then I watched it. My opinion was, Oh man, this was a bad movie. Um, just Why? In, I just well, it wasn't. It was hard to. I just didn't believe him as a, a Saints quarterback. You know, I keep hearing that over and over again. But like when I look at uh, you you see the photo right of uh, Tom Brady at forty, and then it's like you had Daryl LaMonica at right. forty, and he's all gray. Or actually, like thirty seven, he's all gray. Yeah. And, 
uh, scruffy. Like that to me, Charlton Hesse, I don't think was a completely unbelievable option. No, you're right. To be it, a sixth right. quarterback. Because at that time you look at George pictures of George Bland. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. George Bland at age 43 looked like he was 63. Yeah. <laughs> he really did. And I know guys that are, you know, my age now that look 20 years older than me. So, and you know, a lot of things factor in diet, smoking, Waste. The fact that we live in the 21st century and, yeah. you know, technology and medicine's all, all better and everything, but I just had a hard time. I know. I, it, I don't know. It stylistically, I mean, it, it was a great film wise. It looked great on screen. It just didn't connect with me. Um, you know, on that other level of going, Oh, this is another, you know, movie I'd want much like paper line paper line to me just kind of has it all in terms of football movies. It's got the music, it's got the cinematography. Yeah. Obviously, you know, we've already talked about Lauren Hutton, but at the very <laughs> end, you got a football game and you got a football game. You don't know the outcome of. Yeah. Well, it's like a perfect hangout movie for football fans. Right. I mean, you know, with the number one, you kind of have to follow along with his like, you know, quick flashbacks and how he became sort of like the gruff character that he is. But with Paper yeah. Lion, it's like, yeah, you just have such long football sequences and you have a lot of fun music and kind of uh, good jazz Americana that goes into yeah. that time period. It, it evoked a time period that I vaguely remember growing up because it was like towards the end of the 60s. And, you know, I'm of that generation that was born before Sesame Street. And so <laughs> I, you know, I kind of remember, you know, um, I want to call it the area, era, um, the Burt Bacharach era. Back then, Burt Bacharach music was kind of popular. And so that's what that whole musical score kind of evokes for me. But again, it just, it just gives me that feeling, hey, you know, I, I can kind of remember that early 70s, late 60s era. Were you one of the people that read the book when you were a kid? Uh, Paper Lion? Yeah. No, no. In fact, I read the book just a couple of years ago. And honestly, I didn't, I was not a fan of it. I I read that at the same time I read the forgettables and I love the forgettables. Oh yeah. And, um, but paper lion, I mean, I saw, I, I enjoy the movie much more. Yeah. I see those two books to me, I think are pretty good early entries into that sort of genre. But I I think as you know, more books became later on, like Dr. Z is the last season of William Eubank and three bricks shy of a load. Like those to me are two of the best you can do in that genre. And those, and those are ones I have not read yet. In fact, the other oh, really? day, um, yeah, um, I, I downloaded um, Semi-Tough and um, North Dallas 40. I mean, I've seen the movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, and those are other, you know, Semi-Tough is is one of my favorite football movies, just because I'm a huge Burt Reynolds fan. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. There was also another really good book, I think, that was written early on before the um, – it was actually with the Cowboys, now that I think about it, but I don't remember what the name of the book is. But it's basically about how uh, it follows Dallas when they were still kind of referred to as next year's champion because they couldn't be. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know who the writer was. And I don't remember the name of the, the book, but that was actually a really early one now that I think about it that I still have to get around to reading. Yeah. Well, it's a thing with when it comes to me moving and my next, you know, my wife and I, um, I already told her the football books are non-negotiable. All those are going with me. hundred <laughs> percent. I haven't gotten rid of any. I've, I've been buying them for the past few years and I just refuse to get any or to get yeah. rid of them. Well, I'm at the point now though. I got to go the Kindle route only just because it's a lot easier to carry with me on the plane. Nah, man, I got, <laughs> I just, actually, you'll really like this. I just bought a few books. I mean, this is like the six man football book where dreams die hard. 
Yeah, I've read that one. It's really good. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to reading this one. And then there's another one about the um, it's called the uh, the Eagles of Heart Mountain about the um, Japanese internment uh, camp football team. Oh, you know what? I did not know about that book. Oh, dude, yeah, I haven't read it yet, but it does look really interesting, and I would recommend. Okay, I shouldn't recommend it if I haven't read it yet, but it does look like an intriguing topic. And then I got these old Pulp Fiction football magazines. Oh, nice. Yeah, these were, uh, yeah, really early in the 40s. They had like these sort of, uh, you know, Pulp Fiction magazines centered around just football. And they were obviously like sports ones they had at the time, but similar to how they had yeah. like detective novels or Westerns they had oh, yeah. these guys. But yeah, the artwork on this is awesome. I I read another one too. It's uh, this one. This one's from the 50s. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's... It's kind of a way like the the story that I read in this one is like a sort of like a crime football novel where like those early 30 hokey college football. Well, he's this one was actually about a professional player, but about a girl who gets involved with a mobster and oh, okay, and, and he gets he therefore gets roped into having to throw a game, yeah. sort of a deal. But yeah, they were those cool, man. I like I really enjoyed the artwork for the time and for the people if, who if are he, wondering what I'm talking about. I'll yeah. post a picture of it. <laughs> Well, have you found any of these online too? I mean, the guys, but I mean, a lot of, I mean, there's the internet library that's got a whole bunch of great stuff. There's a great book on the world football league. Uh, Scott Adamson told me about it and I did a search one day and I go, there's only one book and it's online at uh, the internet library. And you have to like check it out on an hourly basis. Really? Same way with uh, Howie's book on the Ottawa Rough Riders. I mean, a lot of stuff is, that's, that's kind of the great thing about the day and age we live in that yeah. a lot of these obscure titles every now and then you'll just, it's like the last, like using the last Super Bowl. would have never known about it except they stumbled upon it on the internet one day. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's been a great resource for me finding all of the books and just information in general. I mean, I know we both right. use uh, newspapers.com and that's been a real godsend to have to find information and, really to find all the books because you just go down that rabbit hole and find all oh, the yeah. vintage yeah. ones. Well, you can, I mean, even, you know, talking about that, just, you know, I'm not plugging SI, but, you know, for me growing up, and there was only one place you either got your, your football news from sport mm-hmm. or from Sports Illustrated, and those were in the library. So that's where, growing up, that's where I got my football stuff. I mean, it was, that was the only source you had or the newspaper. Yeah, well, I mean, and what's the point about like uh, going back to Plimpton? I feel like that's why that book was kind of really popular at the time because SI was really the only place you could find like breakdowns of games and position by position responsibilities. And because whenever I wrote the book review, it was like, you know, it wasn't really that good because of the stories and the, you know, the antics and the pranks, but just because of learning about like what a receiver does on a given play or the, the vernacular and the terminology. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I mean, it was in terms of books, I mean, you know, it was good. It was an easy read and, but, but then I read the forgettables and, you know, I know we're not going to, you know, you know, we haven't talked about NFL films and that'll be a a discussion for, for another show, but, you know, having seen the NFL films, two documentaries on the Pottstown Firebirds, Mm -hmm. then going back and reading the book, I enjoyed it because I could visualize these guys and it was written very, very well. And, um, you know, but it's, it's, you know, writing, it's books like that. You just, once you, you find your, you lose yourself in them. 
Yeah, well, especially I kind of wish I would have read the book before I watched the two documentaries, but whenever I got to talk to Phil talking about the the experience of making that. Right. I mean, that, well, that, that you know, one. and in talking about books, I'm right in the middle of and I'm pulling it up here um on my phone, but I'm reading a book called Gridiron Cup 1982. Okay. Mm, okay. And it is available if you have uh, Kindle Unlimited. Mm-hmm. It's on Kindle Unlimited. It's about international football. Basically, imagine a parallel universe where Joseph Stalin, Joseph Stalin saw American football and decided the Soviets were going to compete with the United States in American football. And I'm interested. It's, it's really good. Um, you know, I've reached out. We're going to have the author on at some point, hopefully within the next month or two, to talk about the book. But it's a, it's a great read. It is. I'm, you know, I read it this past. I'm about a quarter of the way in, and I'm hooked. It's like a speculative fiction book or it's like, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. That- yeah. I always, I always use the, um, when I read books like that, you know, in order to generate some belief, you know, a lot of times you'll read a book going, Oh, that'll never happen. Yes. But in a parallel universe, it might. So I always, you know, I put my DC comics hat on and go, well, this is, this is an earth that we know. This is like earth 57 where <laughs> something like this is happening. Yeah. Yeah, the, that's a good part about alternative history. That kind of satisfies the what if. Yeah. You know? Well, you have to run very soon. So I'm glad that we had the time to do this, man. This was a lot of fun, very wide ranging conversation. So I could I could talk football all night, man. I love doing this stuff. So and hopefully we'll be talking uh, hopefully very soon on uh, our other favorite subject, NFL films. Yeah, everybody stay tuned uh, in the near future. Might be as soon as next week, but um more details will come but yeah we're going to be doing a uh, entire show revolving around nfl film so stay tuned everybody all right greg you want to tell people where they can find you on twitter and instagram if they've never yeah yeah seen the show? Uh, on twitter i'm at cfl america and also at gridiron japan and from there you can find our websites and our uh and our um and our podcast you know on the podcast side on the, um on cfl america side you've got cfl america radio.ca and from the 55 yard line.ca and over on talking Japanese American football, you've got um, gridiron Japan radio.net and gridiron Japan tv.net and then gridiron Japan.net. It's, it's a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> I'll put it in the description if anybody didn't get all that. All right, Greg, but uh, thanks again for coming on the show, man. I'm looking forward to the next episode. All right, brother. We'll see you soon.